You are listening to the Wildlife Photography Podcast with Rob Reed and Josh Galicki, bringing together the love of nature and photography. Episode 10. We discuss the essence of photography and capturing different forms of light. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Wildlife Photography Podcast with me, Rob Reed, and my co-host, Josh Galicki. Hi, Josh. How's it going? Hey, Rob. Doing well. Doing well. I'm looking forward to this discussion, actually. And yeah, it should be uh, a lot of fun. Yep. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun because we're, well, being spring, there's a lot more light around than there was <laughs> in the last few months. That's for sure. So I just, yeah, I thought it would be a, be a great topic for us to talk about. So anything from sort of natural light and all the way to uh, artificial forms of light like flash and uh, and led but we'll, we'll we'll get into that you know a little bit later as we we, we get into the podcast but uh, what, what have you been up to recently you know things are starting to move in i mean spring migration is in full steam right now so i've been getting out uh when i can early mornings uh we have a lot of songbirds coming back in the northeast united states ducks have pretty much moved out um herons waders are coming back so it's exciting you know i've I, my first um, Forster's turns, they came back about a week ago. Um, so I've, I'm seeing a lot of things move up the coast now. So it's exciting and more to come. I mean, you know, the dams are really going to burst in the next two weeks. We're going to have, yeah. you know, a lot more of the, you know, uh, later migrants arrive and it'll go all the way for the, probably the next three, three to four weeks for most of May. And then at the end of May, we have a lot of shorebirds coming back, you know, the famous red knots, dowagers, they'll all be heading up to the Arctic and I'm going to, get to the beach as much as possible so looking forward to it yeah busy time of year isn't it i mean because here yeah. we've got well as i said i think i mentioned last time we spoke that uh, we've got warblers coming back into the woodland but um you know i've had swallows and house martins now you know i know that friends of mine have seen hobby for example coming mm -hmm. in so yeah it's all happening and and of course you know i walk through the wood and it's so nice at this time of the year just you, you yeah. go in there early morning and the you know the dawn chorus is just fabulous yeah. it does really really sort of it's very green. very very uplifting isn't it it's yeah it's, it's so good there's nothing but, uh, better to your point i think walking in kind of a misty wet spring wood and hearing the dawn chorus yeah. I, I it's hard to top that in nature it really is. well we, we, were, we were chatting yesterday because we did the uh judging for light our light category um which really was the uh inspiration for doing this podcast actually was was that particular subject and i was telling you that we had such a cold spring I mean, it's been wet and really, really cold for like mm. the last two, you know, couple of months. And it was only really yesterday when I happened to have to sit inside and talk to you guys and judge light <laughs> that it was really warm and sunny. And uh, yeah, it felt like spring had finally arrived. We but, finally uh, got some rain here. It's been pretty dry, unusually dry. Yeah. Normally, you know, March and, and April are very wet, wet months, but it's been unusually dry. Now the rain's starting to pick up, which is a good thing. But uh, yeah. Well, yeah. we're, we're back to the cold and the drizzle today, unfortunately. Mm. <laughs> I think it's going to be better tomorrow. But yeah, then the next the next few months, I, I just really enjoy this time of the year when, you know, you can get up at five in the morning and it's starting to get light and it doesn't get dark until nine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's what, partly why Jennifer and I disappeared to the coast in December, <laughs> because you just can't take at least the quality of light at the coast is is better. Yeah. You know, the flat horizons, no doubt, yeah, help out. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so it kind of brings us on to, to light, I guess, doesn't it? And yeah. I thought, why don't we start the conversation about that? And, and, and let's talk about the use of natural light. And 
I guess the traditional way when people first out, start out in photography is that they're always taught that, you know, have the sun behind your back and, you know, you so the, the, the subject is front lit and, and that's the way it should be done. And I guess, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. And I still sort of shoot subjects like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, again, it, it, you're talking about the quality of the light and the light temperature and the time of day. That makes a, you know, a, a big, big difference. But most of my photography now, I have to say, is done shooting into the light um, with side lighting because I just find it much more exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. And I, I'll say from my standpoint, there's no one form of light that's better than the other. You can create great images in any form of light, frankly, right? But I think each type of light that you use certainly has its advantages and disadvantages and requires sometimes more from the photographer and sometimes less from the photographer. Um, and I think you have to be more creative, especially as you were just saying with direct sun. You know, that's where most people start. That's where I started. When I started photographing birds, you know, you want the sun behind you. You want the, your shadow in front of you the wind behind you. So the birds will fly directly into the wind toward you. So there is a few things that you would check off in the field and you'd get ready to take that shot. And it's, it's a great place for people to start. Um, but you know, it's still a great place to come up with photos. Even, you know, if you've been shooting for many, many years, you just have to make it interesting to the viewer, you know? So, uh, I'm with you. I think I like side light, you know, personally, as I've kind of shot over the years, it's the most dramatic to me. Uh, again, if you use it correctly or, you know, you apply it correctly in the field and I like backlight as well. Um, but each kind of comes with their own advantages and disadvantages, even diffuse light, you know, just on a cloudy day, there's advantages there. Um, and we can kind of get into those and talk. Yeah, about and them. I think the thing to remember is that, is that the very definition of photography is, is the capture of light. Yeah. And I, I think if you, I often sort of use this in some of the talks that I give that, if you think about photography as capturing light rather than capturing the subject that's in front of you, it changes your whole mindset towards, you know, towards photography. It, I just think it, it, you know, it just gives you a different perspective on things if you start thinking in, in, in you know, in that way, which is why I, you know, I like playing around, you know, with light coming from, you know, different sources and different directions and seeing the way it plays on things. And as, you, as you're saying, that there are no real lighting conditions that you can't use for photography. You just need to adapt what you're shooting, I think. Yeah. So for if, we, if you take a, an overcast day, for example, and let's say you've got high cloud, that's perfect for doing, uh, you know, for, for doing sort of high key. Yeah, images. you can add an artistic element into it. Absolutely, I, exactly. I agree. There's always things you can use, even on dull overcast days, even if it's raining. Take, for example, at the moment, so many spring flowers coming out, you know, in, in the woodland. I mean, I just this is why I love this time of the year, because there's so much to, to have a go at. If it's raining as it was this morning uh, here and it's overcast, just think how, you know, how you can use those conditions to to photograph, you know, rain soaked plants, for example, that nice, diffuse, even lighting. That you can i mean it's you, the the possibilities are endless with light i agree and it creates a nice setting in those conditions i was just shooting the other day songbirds in the morning you know wet diffuse light and there's something about when you have a light rain when you're in the forest canopy i don't know what it is but it creates um these pastel colors you get these pinks 
and purples in the background. And it's very, very pleasing. And then of course you have water in the frame and adds, you know, it adds a sense of feeling. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Something that you can't get in using other forms of light. It just, uh, you have to know how to take advantage of the situation. And that well, comes you, with experience, you know? Yeah. I speak to a lot of uh, people that, uh, photographers that photograph woodland, for example, and their favorite conditions are when it's drizzling, where you've got that light rain, as you were just saying, or you've got this fog oh, because yeah. it creates the separation yep. because woodland is very chaotic by its very nature. And I think, you know, when you introduce those elements, well, one, you know, especially if you've got a sort of polarizing filter on as well, you know, the, the saturation of the colors in those circumstances can be, can be just look awesome. Yeah. The you know, green, it just creates this, this, yeah, it just creates this, this different feel. So I think, you know, I, I always look at the conditions and, you know, if I've got time, which I haven't had a lot of just recently, but if I've got time to get out with the camera, you know, if it's doing something like that, then I'll go into the woodland if it's drizzling and it's overcast and I'll go, right, okay, well, you know, I can use those conditions to my advantage. A lot of those woodland guys, they, they love those conditions. And I've seen some, some awesome stuff, you know, from, from people that, that use those conditions in a, in a very, very creative way. They're, they're so clever. And, and the other thing I, I like about those conditions as well is when you do get that little break in the cloud and you get these shafts of sunlight coming through that, that drizzle or that fog can just be yeah, amazing. so dramatic. Amazing. You know, you so mentioned a polarizer. I've got a warming polarizer that I've been using for years in, in similar conditions, but uh, it warms things up just a little too much. Uh, when I put it in post, like for the greens, I like more blues in my greens than yellows. So I'll cool it down and uh, it's, but yeah, it, amazing conditions to shoot in, especially when it comes to cloudy diffuse light. You want that extra element. I think it's a lot tougher if you're shooting on a cloudy day and you don't have those conditions or you're not within the canopy there's more on the photographer because, you know, I've seen situations where, and for me, I photographed a particular mammal or bird under, you know, just kind of, I'll call it boring, cloudy conditions versus dramatic light conditions in order to, if you're in that boring, cloudy kind of diffuse light, you have to make it interesting. And that's where you have to step up your game because the light isn't going to be the central portion of that, uh, that shot. Maybe there's subtlety in there. Maybe there's an interaction or maybe there's, you know, a feeding sequence or, you know, a predator prey sequence, you need, it's more on the photographer at that point to up, up the game of the photo, not letting the light do that. So there has to be an introduction, I think a subtlety or interaction, something to make the image interesting beyond just kind of the diffuse light on a cloudy day. So again, it depend, depending on the situation, more may be asked of the photographer in the field than other situations. Yeah. Because I guess when we're talking about artistic images we're talking about an element of drama aren't we it's something that, that sort of pulls that that viewer in yeah um and if you haven't got those dramatic lighting conditions which we can go on and we can talk about <laughs> some of the situations that we've had uh, then you need something else I'm, I'm i'm with you and in fact i was you know earlier today i was looking through a shoot which i had in very very similar conditions to that which you were just describing last year on one of my local lakes and I was photographing ducks and coots and that sort of thing. And I was using reflections because, uh, well, reflections and also slower shutter speeds to get them, to get a bit of motion in the feathers where they're sort of shaking themselves off or they're mm. preening or they're just to try and do something a little different and try and get that drama into that 
image to get that story into the image in some other way because the the light was was very very flat so i was using you know this sort of mirror reflections and, and you know a little bit of motion that sort of thing to try and do something a bit different i have to say you know my my favorite images are with that dramatic light yeah it, you know i don't think you can you can beat that uh, and in fact, uh, you know, I quickly moved on to another one of my favorite folders and picked out another image, which I shot a couple of years ago uh, in lighting conditions, which I don't think I'll ever get again. Uh, not in not yeah. in that way. And, uh, and and I had to process an image, which I'm quite pleased with, actually. But, you, uh, you make a good point. You mentioned flat. I mean, that's, you know, when it comes to contrast, contrast can make or break images. And when you're shooting on a cloudy day, diffuse light, you know, you, your images are going to be flat, more flat. You don't have that contrast just based on the type of light that you have. So when you shoot in more dramatic conditions, that's when you can really take advantage of contrast, whether it's silhouettes and shapes and extreme backlight or side light for, you know, emphasizing certain parts in the animal or, or your scene. I think, um, yeah, it just depends on the situation. Yeah. So you mentioned side lighting earlier. What is it about side lighting that, that sort of really does it for you? Well, you know, I, I, I like extreme side light. I don't, well, maybe that's the wrong term, but strong side light, uh, not necessarily soft because when you have a, a side light that comes in or light that comes in from a particular angle in the frame, it creates shadows and it also enlightens certain areas. So there's a sense of mood. There's an emphasis on shape. There's an emphasis on, there's some mystery in the photo. You know, and even if you go back to, you know, famous painters and like, there's, there's always an introduction of shadow and, a, and an angled light that comes in. It can offer a low key look where, especially if you have a, a lighter subject where you're exposing for the whites, you can get this dramatic low key effect, or, you know, you could get, a, you know, certain emphasis on things, macro photography, using even artificial light. Whenever I have a soft box, if I'm photographing a frog, snake or whatever, um, I always bring my light in on an angle overhead. You don't want to have just direct light. Um, it introduces a sense of interest and mystery there. Um, whereas everything evenly lit, it's, it's rather boring, especially from an artistic standpoint. So I think it's very, very interesting. And it's tough to use that light because when the light is coming in at a certain angle, you want to make sure that you're, 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 you yourself as the photographer are at the right angle and at the right distance where you have the light falling where you want it to, because if it doesn't fall in the in the right in the right spot within the frame, then it's not going to be a good shot. So, yeah, because you're using light to emphasize the the bits of the frame that you want the viewer to concentrate on, aren't you? That's yeah. that's the whole point of it. And eliminate distractions as well. It, it naturally eliminates distractions. If you're shooting in diffuse, cloudy conditions and everything is illuminated and it's rather flat you have to be sure that you're framing up with less distraction or you're going to have to do something post-processing that I don't like to waste a lot of time on doing, whether it's blurring or any of that. To me, that's a little too much. And but... it kind of, you know, you, you can kind of tell as well when that's, you know, when people have done that, yeah. it doesn't really look natural. And that's really what you want to get to. Do you know that when we were sort of, when you were talking about the sort of side lighting and, you know, the contrast that you're looking for, it reminded me of, um, portrait photographers and studying you know that particular genre which I think is is really it's really important for people to step out of the sort of wildlife photography arena and look at other areas of photography and, and draw ideas and inspiration from them and when you're looking at portrait photography if you want a corporate headshot for example so you know you want nice smiley but you want even lighting and the standard lighting setup for that is flash either side of the camera pretty much evenly balanced 
put the subject in front of you. Here we go. Bang. I mean, I've done it loads of times for people. But if you want a more moody image, let's say you're looking for, let's say it's, um, you know, it's a musician, for example, and you want an element of drama, you want an album cover or you want something, you're not going to shoot an image like that. You're going to use a single light, a dark background, emphasize certain features on the face, that sort of thing. And when you draw inspiration from, from looking at that type of photography, I think you can use that in wildlife photography you know, to your advantage you know, and, and take, take inspiration from, from those sorts of things. I think it was Gail was saying, wasn't she, I think, um, when we spoke to her that, well, I, I know, you know, having spoken to her before, Gail Bisson, um, who's been on the podcast, she takes a lot of inspiration from other forms of photography. I mean, I, I look at a lot of street photography, for example, because I like mm -hmm. the way they also use light in this way, you know, the side lighting, the backlighting, those sorts of things to add drama and emphasize sort of shape, form, because yeah. that's that's what they're drawing the you know the viewer's attention to and in nature when you're shooting wild subjects whether it's you know mammals birds and what have you for the most part i think you can make some exceptions uh with macro because you are controlling things a bit when it comes to light direction and source but you're not in the studio you don't have that luxury of you know bringing in someone sitting them in a chair and working on all these natural angles you have to wait for that type of light and the best light that you get out in the field in order to get those effects it's it's kind of it's a dramatic side light whether it's dappled light coming in or whether it's you know coming in from a specific angle where you, you know it, you really have to wait for those conditions and you have to take advantage of them you can't just walk into the field on any day and recreate that so no. um, and i think when you when you start uh, breaking free of having the light behind you and there is absolutely nothing wrong with that style of photography if that's what does it for you but when you break free of that and you start as you're saying playing around with side light playing around with backlight things really start opening up for you you you, you really start to see uh, you know the benefits of you know and the possibilities and the and the and the different effects that you can get by overexposing by underexposing by using little specular highlights that are out of focus in the background you know bokeh yeah you know and 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 the beautiful effect that 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 can give you and you can create that in so many ways you know it could yeah. be sun shining through dew droplets for example it could be uh you know uh, gaps in the in the tree canopy so you've got the brighter sky behind you know, little gaps in the in the tree canopy, which when they go out of focus, produce nice bokeh, all those sorts mm -hmm. of things. And of course, when we come to talk about artificial lights, and we've seen a lot of this, you know, in wild art recently, yeah. particularly for the light category. Top 100 those, amazing artificial light images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. probably my favorites. <laughs> it, it's those sort of city lights reflecting with a lot yeah. of the water birds that we've had and, and the effect that that can, well, water birds and things like urban foxes and, and all those sorts of things i mean they i mean just so so dramatic yeah. when you start experimenting with this thing and when you really understand start understanding how you can use light to sculpt your subject and draw this attention mm -hmm. or or add in that extra element of absolute magic to an image yeah i mean one of one of my favorite things is backlit mist at dawn oh yeah yeah i mean man you <laughs> There are so many things you can do with that. If you, uh, this is a great example, actually, for photographing something with the sun behind you 
and how you can change it dramatically by doing the complete polar opposite of that and photographing into the sun. So if you imagine that you have a misty morning and you've got the sun coming up and it's coming up behind you and then it's lighting that mist, you're going to get a pretty white image, pretty high key image because there's, you know, all you've got is the sun reflecting directly from those water droplets. Whereas if you shoot from it into the sun, you've got that lovely warm, you know, color temperature of that, you know, that sort of golden hour period, it's coloring the mist and it's creating this, this drama. You can see all the little wafts where it's, you know, where the density of that mist is different and it creates these little clouds and you can start putting things into silhouette. You can start introducing a little bit of extra bokeh if you've got that water in the, if you're talking about water birds or something similar, there are so many things you can do with it. And, mm -hmm. it, and you're going from a, a pretty sort of, I guess, almost high key image with the image with the sun behind you to creating something with a lot more depth and color and mood. So if you think about, you know, if you think about the differences, you know, just given that particular example, then I think you start to see how just changing the angle of the light source completely changes the dynamic of the image and, and, and the story that you can tell with that image. I think yeah. that's very, very powerful. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Rob. You know, and I'm thinking about it at a high level. We were just talking about side light uh, and side light to me is, you know, it's more, it's based more around the principles of portrait photography. You can add character, you can add charisma, you can add personality, you add um, emotion and expression in an animal's portrait, you know, or a photograph or using side light. When you're using backlight for me as a photographer, it's a completely different emphasis. It's not an emphasis on the animal's expression or personality. It, for me, using backlight, it's an emphasis more on shape and color. You're emphasizing, you know, the rich colors that you get from, you know, the sun rising in the background, your yellows, your reds. Um, when it comes to shape, it could be the silhouette shape based on the exposure. It could be the shape of the bokeh. So it's, you're just using different elements and you're emphasizing different elements in the frame. So I think going from side light to backlight, um, you're in a completely different situation. One that's much more different, I think, and one that can go from personality based uh, to an animal to one that's more artistic when it comes to color and shape. So that's kind of how I've, I've always view those different lighting situations in the field. Yeah. Cause I mean, you, you know, I mean, that's sort of that, silhouette style or that rim lighting style with a backlighting i mean that that can just be so so powerful i mean yeah you know take take a look at the the top 100 in in the in the light category that we we've, we've just judged uh and that will you know go to the wild art website and uh, there's a link right on the home page uh, or if you're listening to this a little bit later on uh, and we've moved on uh, through the categories that there'll still be the uh, there'll still be the gallery there just drop down and, and have a look at the uh, the winners tab at the top um, and, and you'll be able to navigate to the top 100 for light because there's some really inspirational stuff there. Some people that have really used light in a very, very clever way and a, and a, a great examples of what Josh and I have just been discussing, actually, that, you know, from from side lighting through to, to, to backlighting, because One you, those those sorts of things, I mean, you think about things like breath, escaping breath, and that sort of thing that, that, that can really add that drama to an image. And you can't get that without an element of side lighting or backlighting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one thing I do when it comes to backlighting, I think you have to choose your subjects well. 
uh, if you're backlighting an image, even when it's, you know, you have an early morning light, the light is very subtle. It's coming up and you get nice rim light around the animal. Um, and the, and the light is a bit more evened out where, you know, you could see the front of the animal when you process the image, it's not silhouette as the light gets a bit harsher, it becomes more the dynamic range. It becomes more of a silhouette, but that said, what's consistent in all these situations with backlight, I look to find subjects that have conspicuous shapes, shapes that are identifiable by the audience, whether it's the rim light of the subject or in more harsher conditions, whether you have the silhouette of the subject, if you have a subject that has a distinct shape. I think it comes off much more powerfully where your audience isn't guessing what that is, whether it's a bear or I recently on Instagram, Rob, I posted, um, it was a silhouette image backlit of a swan. I mean, you, you can't, you know, it's undeniable when you look at that, it's a swan, right. Based on the shape yeah. of the neck and, and the bill and so forth. So always, I always try to look for subjects that are conspicuous when it comes to shape or have interesting shape. To show. No, I, I absolutely agree. Actually, the, the silhouette images that work the best, are the ones where you look at it instantly and go, I know what that is. Yeah. So you're not guessing that part of it's already, you know, imprinted itself on your brain. And now you're looking at the rest of the image because you know instantly what it is. You're not sat there going, well, I, I, I don't know what it is. What is it? Because yeah. then you're not looking at the photograph as a whole. You're, you're trying to work out, you know, what you're actually looking at. Whereas if you had that instant recognition, I think it's, I agree with you. It's much, much more powerful. And when you've got those, you know, when you've got those animals like, a swan, like an elephant, you know, these iconic things that you cannot mistake for anything else. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's a lot more powerful than, I don't know, some form of invertebrate that you don't instantly connect with. Mm -hmm. Or maybe even the posturing, you know, if you're shooting a bear yeah. backlit, you want the bear standing up or maybe breathing with breath versus, you know, laying down on the ground and being a blob. <laughs> so, yeah, so, yeah. You want some separation from the yeah. various sort of, body parts don't you one <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of a better expression that's not that's not the most elegant way of putting it <laughs> and you know one thing too i think that's difficult when it comes to backlight images uh, i find that we we spoke in one of the previous episodes on digital manipulation or post-processing if i take an image that's backlit especially early morning sun or late evening sun there's not a lot of contrast in that raw image your raw image is generally flat anyhow but uh, you'll basically have kind of a reddish or orange glow. Your subject will be there. And it takes much more attention on the post-processing side to bring out the contrast and process it correctly. Whether if, as opposed to if you're shooting something with direct sunlight, it takes a lot less processing. Your contrast is there. Your colors are more accurate. It's a bit more obvious, isn't it? As it well, is. I think when you, when you look at it, because it's a bit more literal. Yeah. You know, and we're, and we're going back to the sort of conversations we've had in the past about, you know, literal Im images versus artistic images. And I guess this is really where this conversation is going again to a degree. You yeah. know, we're talking about the use of light. And if you're shooting with something, as you were saying, with the sun behind you and you've got you know, you've got the raw images capturing those obvious elements. It's it's much easier to process because you are just. I mean, you're just tweaking levels, really, aren't you? With mm -hmm. with something like that, it doesn't take a lot. Whereas, yeah, you're absolutely right. When you're the camera sees you're, more what you're doing, you know, you yeah. see as the camera with direct light versus backlight, you see better than the camera, and you have to really do some. You know, it's it's fairly substantial sometimes. Yeah, and and it's easy to get it wrong as well. And we've yeah. both seen that when somebody's taken what you think, oh, that's that's a really good idea, that's a really good image, but the post processing leaves a little to be desired and they either haven't calibrated their screen or they, you know, they're not, they're not 
they're not sort of processing it in their brain the way that perhaps they in a way that gets the most out of the the, the yeah. picture because i think what what frustrates me sometimes is when people take an image and they process it in a way that yes they're trying to extract all the artistic juice out of it if, if you like but they make errors and they create something that's not of this planet so therefore the connection starts to get lost for yep. the viewer i think if you try to overduce things which is a phrase i know you like to yeah. use quite a lot uh, or they you know they get the, something the wrong. Uh, nuclear uh, the nuclear yeah. plus 100 on the color side. i agree i think it there's two fails it's the color overjuicing the color on backlit and also the black point i think finding a good black point in the image whereas if the contrast is done correctly there's not much of a black point there's more of a gray point or just things are just they're just washed out and it doesn't necessarily have a good um it's not leveled out accordingly i think black point and color are the two things that stick out most for me when i process something that's backlit yeah. especially um uh, an early morning or a late evening backlit that's not strong enough where i have a silhouette where i'm not silhouetting my subject what's your view on sort of taking images where you've got burnt out highlights or you've got you know uh, areas of shadow with absolutely no detail at all i mean i i think you can use those very very well artistically and i think if you are bold with those and break those rules which you know the technical rules which said oh you can't burn out any of the highlights and you've always got to have detail in the shadows i quite often break those rules i don't know what your view on that is yeah, it when in speaking about backlit images, I think you know some of the bokeh if they're a little burnt out, I don't mind. Um, but you don't want the again, it's all choosing. It's a trade off. You don't want parts of the frame that are burnt out or blown out from a highlight perspective. That's going to distract you from the entire frame. If I'm shooting high key and cloudy conditions. All of my whites are blown out. I'm totally fine with that. If uh, I'm shooting, you know, direct sunlight on a wood duck, for instance, it's got this white small white line around its face that can be burnt out it just you know so it just uh, it just depends um i don't mind certain shadows um to be very dark with no information in them uh it can be done well you just have to know how to apply it the right way and i not guess it's all down to context isn't it agreed i in, totally in terms agree. of the image well i think the point i'm trying to make is that i don't think people should be afraid yeah. of an image which okay, so it might might show those blinkies when you look at it on the back of your camera. I don't think you should be afraid of that. At times, I want that. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, can always turn them back and post, even if you feel it's too much. And bringing out a few blinkies might be essential for a tougher exposure to bring out your midtones. If you want your midtones a little brighter, you know, there's always a trade-off. Something always suffers in the <laughs> in the exposure exactly. range. Yeah, yeah. But so I think the point I'm trying to make is that don't be afraid to experiment. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, don't try and get that sort of perfect histogram on the on the back of the camera every time, because actually, if you're photographing from art, an artistic point of view, which really is, you know, the, the, the whole point of, of the discussion, I guess, with, with, with light and the whole direction that you and I tend to go with our own photography anyway, is, you know, you, that's not what you want most of the time. You want yeah. something which is either left or is to the left or to the right. To, yeah. to a degree because you're bringing the emphasis to a certain part of the frame by doing that i think and we were just talking about different forms of light for instance we were talking about side light if i have strong side light on a great egret or a hare and a white bird 
I'm going to expose properly for the whites. And because uh, I'm going to have such a fast shutter speed to expose for the whites, everything's going to be rendered dark around it for that effect. Whereas if I'm shooting a, a mid-tone bird on a cloudy day on, on a dead branch and I want high key, I'm going to blow the whites out maybe by three stops. So it all depends on the situation. You're absolutely right, Rob. Don't, yeah. Folks should not feel constrained by the histogram. And, and isn't it amazing how much you have to under or overexpose at times? Yeah. If you're, because I, I, everybody does it differently. And I, I use a lot of exposure. Com, I use the exposure compensation button a lot. Um, and that's just the way I tend to work rather than doing everything manually because my brain's a bit simple and I, I can't, I can't cope with too many things at once. So <laughs> I tend to, that's what I tend to do. I tend to, to play around with exposure compensation and choose my, you know, the aperture and the shutter speed that I want and let auto ISO sort everything else out. That's, that's generally my preferred method. Don't do it all the time. I mean, obviously mm. every situation is different, but yeah. with, with the way that ISO is now, you really don't have to worry too much about it. That's um, a good point. Yeah. Especially with cameras today. I mean, you know, it used to be when I had my 7D, I would never go above ISO 800. <laughs> that's well, right. Start, I it, think. <laughs> exactly. I, I was, I was, um, uh, I was talking to uh, a camera club recently and showing them some images and I'd show my settings when I show the images. So people know, you know, how I've set my camera up to achieve what I've got. And, and of course my starting point with ISO normally is about a thousand. I, you know, I'll start there mm. and I'll work around it depending on, you know, the situation, if I can get away with, with less. I mean, uh, everybody wants to use a hundred if they can, yeah. but the reality of wildlife photography, and we're going a bit off piece here, but hey, um, that's not unusual. The reality <laughs> of wildlife photography is you don't have, you know, you, you don't have the luxury of that most of the time. So I don't tend to worry about it because modern cameras these days, they handle that, you know, they handle those ISOs, particularly if you're working with a decent amount of light so, so well. But I had this question is like, why are you using that? You know, why are you using an ISO that high? And I said, because why well, why wouldn't I? Because it allows me to use the settings that I want in other areas. It allows me to use a higher shutter speed. And I'm not afraid of yeah. a thousand ISO. I'm not afraid of three thousand two hundred ISO. I'm not afraid of more in decent light conditions. Okay, if you've got a really dull, dark day and you're using 12,800 or whatever, yeah, you know, expect you're gonna lose some detail and you're gonna get a bit of noise. Yeah. You know, and, and I would much rather uh, a focused uh, wildlife shot that has the animal in focus and that's sharp with a little bit of grain versus something that's smooth as butter and is a big blur. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. And as we've said before, there is always, you know, modern software technology to help you out with your noisy <laughs> images. I'm not I'm not going to plug any particular software. <laughs> I, I, I have to say there there is a new one and um that's on there's a raw converter uh and it is dynamite i i've i've seen some of the conversions i couldn't believe it it's well beyond what i've seen in some of the previous uh by the way just as i noticed um adobe camera on lightroom they have a denoise function now similar to what topaz has and i played around with it it's actually not that bad for what it's worth but i digress well i i saw i saw that on the latest iteration of um of, of lightroom and I, I i thought oh it can't be as good as topaz but i'll to play around with it <laughs> do you know that's another really good that's another really good subject for a podcast funnily enough mm. is you know is the way you know modern software we ought to put that down on the list before we came on air josh and i were talking about a list of 
of subjects that that we we want to talk about in future podcasts. And I've got about fifteen or sixteen all lined up because I've had a few suggestions from from people that have listened and uh, and have, have messaged either one of us. And uh, yeah, that, I think that would be a, another good one to add to the list. So you know, and, and that's a good thing to that's a good point actually. If anybody listening to this has a subject that they want Josh and I to cover, then do send us a message. You know, put a comment in the you know, in the comments section below or so, you know, probably the best thing to do is send us a direct message on, on Instagram. The, the links to our accounts are, you know, will be in the show notes. Um, just get in touch with us that way and just, just, just make a suggestion. So, you know, we're, we're always up for, for, for talking about things that people want to hear about because, yeah. you know, <laughs> keep them coming up with the ideas sometimes. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't no. the easiest thing. <laughs> anyway, sorry, that's, a, that's another digression <laughs> from the subject. But anyway, so that's I guess that's the way we can we sort of touching on using natural light. I mean, there's so many other things that we could talk about, you know, with with natural light. And, you know, I guess time of day. Well, let's let's talk about time of day, actually, before we move on to artificial light, because that that does make a difference. And we were talking about, you know, dawn and obviously the other end of the, the day being being evening and the way that the color temperature is obviously so much warmer at mm. those times of the day and how you can use those to your advantage to add that element of drama, that element of storytelling into the in into images, which is what I look for. And I know you're the same. Then you have that period of light before the dawn, which they call the blue hour, which gives you a completely different feel because obviously the color temperature before the sun has come up or after it has set is a lot cooler how do you how do you tend to sort of approach that josh yeah that's a good point and you know you could really shoot at all times of the day i mean i've been on night drives in africa we shot at night with a spotlight so yeah, there's there's that even before or after the or before the blue hour um you know i think it all depends on the quality of light. I prefer to shoot when there's a blue hour before um, the sun does come up, meaning a clear day or something where the sun, you know, you, you, yeah, I guess it's not going to work on an overcast day. Is it on an an overcast day? It probably doesn't work as good. And you need to be ready. We were just talking about using higher ISOs and having faster shutter speeds, accepting grain in the image that all comes with the territory for blue light or the blue hour, which I wish they would come up with a different name because it's never an hour. It's always a much shorter time. Frame. Yeah, it's always about 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. the Because uh, you, you've got to balance thing. having sufficient light yeah. with that sun not having peaked above the horizon when the temperature changes. Absolutely. And I like that. It's a great time for cool tones as well. I guess blue gives it off. But I like some of the cool tones you can get uh, in the, I'll call it the blue minutes. And then, of course, when the sun comes up, if it's a clear day, you want to take advantage of that golden light. The best light is right when the sun just comes over and you get some reds and yellows. And one thing I'll say, which is a misnomer too, a lot of people, and again, it's more traditional folks will shoot maybe in the blue hour, the blue minutes, whatever you want to call them, but they're focused on that golden light. And after, you know, the morning and the light gets, you know, harsher, they pack up and leave and they come back in the evening perhaps. Um, and maybe there's some stuff for civil twilight after the sun sets, you get some great color. I get a lot of great color. Actually, I get the best color when the sun sets on the Chesapeake Bay in my backyard. Um, I, I wait for that actually for some of my, my favorite shooting, but you can always shoot throughout the day, even on a clear day. I mean, it's going to be harsh. 
you're going to have, you know, overhead sun, but that's great for black and white images, right? Like, well, we touched on that, didn't we, in the last episode with with African wildlife and yeah, you know, and the problems with photographing that that the majority of the time you've got to do it during the middle of the day because that's the only time you can actually get out, you know, and, and photograph these things. That's right. And you and I are lucky; we're you know, a good distance from the equator. And I've learned this when I was in South America and in Africa. When I'm you're near the equator, you do not golden light really. It's it's that it's similar to what we were just talking about with. Uh, uh, the blue hour, it's only a few minutes. I mean, it's very, very fleeting because the sun comes up so quick based on where you are. Uh, the golden light where we're at actually lasts a lot longer and it's more beneficial to us. But I think if you're shooting on a clear day, you can shoot all day. I mean, I've gone from shooting, you know, birds or mammals early in the morning to when the light gets harsh, I'll go get my macro lens out, can use a diffuser, you know, go into shaded areas for frogs or whatever is active throughout the day. Or, you know, you can shoot black and white, you know, a lot of contrast, a lot of shadows, uh, you can come up with some things that are creative. And then of course, you know, the light gets uh, more pleasing near, near the end of the day. You could shoot all day. It's just a matter of how you take advantage of it and how you position. You said something really interesting there actually. And, uh, you know, during those sort of harsh light periods, and that was sort of going off and finding different subjects to photograph in different areas. So you might go into an area of shade, for example, where, okay, so that, you know, you've got strong sunlight, but if, as you're in an area of shade, you've got this diffuse light and mm -hmm. then you can use it. So it's, it is sort of thinking about, you know, how you can use these different situations and different times of day to your advantage by shooting different things. So yeah, using that, using that side, that, uh, that shade or diffusing the light with a light diffuser, which mm -hmm. actually, you know, I hadn't got down on my list to talk about, but actually that's, that's, quite a an interesting subject in itself so you, when we're talking about diffusers we're normally talking about some sort of white sheet or or if you've got um a reflector of some description quite often they'll come with um you know the reflection bit will be a cover and you know the inside of it will be like this sort of uh translucent sort of white material which you know you can actually create some nice shape it's almost like um that high cloud that you get that when we were talking about the uh, high key images, you know, where you get plenty of light, but it's all diffused through this high cloud, it, it creates that sort of effect. So you can use those sort of things to photograph the smaller subjects. So if you're looking at invertebrates or, you know, small amphibians and reptiles, that sort of thing, um, you know, you can use those. So you've got this nice, decent, strong lighting, but you can diffuse it through those through those things and create more even lighting, which you say so you can start with perhaps a, uh, you know, a more traditional uh, literal shot and then work with it from there and see what you can get. Yep. But it's, it's almost like having the sun behind you, you know, on a, on a high cloud day, that sort of thing. So yeah, think yeah. about that. Think about that. And, and some animals are more active at different times of day. So, you know, from my experience, I can go out in the early morning, shoot birds, but I could photograph snakes, frogs later on in the day, you know, as it gets warmer, snakes come out, you know, so you're not going to shoot them at 7am for me after 10am, 11am, and there's harsher light. You can, again, use a diffuser reflector, shoot them with flash. Um, you just have to be creative and know your subjects and when to approach them. And you could shoot all day, even on a clear day. Uh, and actually I, I photograph plants in woodland where they might have a, a strong shaft of light lighting them directly but behind them there's an area of shade 
so you can use that contrast to your advantage and underexpose. So all you get is just the sort of, you know, the, the brightly lit areas of, of the plant are exposed correctly, if you like, but of course the background is all black. So you can then start picking out just these little elements and just creating, so, so don't give up, I think, mm. on, on these sort of harsh lighting conditions because there are things that you can do. Uh, and yeah. the more you get into it, the more you realize, you know, the potential of these things and actually the more interesting it becomes. Yeah, we were talking about side light before, but dappled forest light is special. You know, you can get some incredible shots using dappled light within the forest canopy for flowers or even birds or or even just, you know, plants, ferns, all kinds of stuff. And as I touched on earlier as well, it's great. You can get great bokeh if you sort of shoot upwards into the tree canopy and you've got that out of focus with a macro lens or a long lens or, you know, you can create some great bokeh with that. Sunbursts are cool too within situations like that, you know, shooting up and getting different types of, uh, well, there was, there was a shot, wasn't there? Kurum's shot in the top 100. Yes. The, uh, uh, what was it? Iguana, iguana or something? From the yeah. Galapagos. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which had a, if you've not seen it, go and have a look at, I said, go and have a look at the list. I know I keep plugging it, but go and have a look at the list and, and see that shot because it is the sun coming from behind the iguana, just this little point of light. And he's got this starburst coming through. It's quite, it's quite impressive actually. You know, and that's yeah. obviously strong, fairly strong sunlight, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, and it, what's interesting about the top 100, I had a look at it uh, this morning, all the different types of light we're talking about. You look at the top 100 and they encompass that, whether it's side light, backlight, artificial light, um, city lights, all these things we're talking about. You can kind of see that variety. And there's so many incredible images in that selection. I mean, yeah, it's pretty mind blowing. So let's let's start talking about um adding in some artificial light now shall we because we've kind of talked about natural light and you know the way we like to use it you know to, to dramatic effect most of the time um you know to to add stories to our images or add drama to our Im images but sometimes and i know you use flash quite a lot so let's start with with flash shall we and i know this is a subject that i know when i first started flash was a bit intimidating you know i didn't quite understand it uh and it took me a long time to get my head around it but the way i eventually kind of pieced that jigsaw puzzle together was to look at it on the basis of right let me start without the flash and let me compose a scene and use the available light that i've the ambient light that i've got then how can i use flash as an additional element to add something extra to that. So it might be, I mean, so let's take fill in flash, for example, that's a kind of guess where most people will start. So I'm going to start with the example of a, uh, of a bird in a woodland area. So it's in an area of shade. So it's pretty flat. The lighting's a bit flat. You know, you're not bringing out the colors of that bird that you want to see, you know, and I know in America, you're blessed with, much more colorful birds than we are in the UK, lucky <laughs> things. But anyway, so you want to bring out those colors and you want to show the viewer what you're, what you're seeing and what that, that, that bird has. Uh, to add in a little bit of fill-in flash, so if you are exposing for the ambient light and then you add in an extra pop of flash just to sort of just pick that image up a little bit, just to add that little extra in, that's how I started with artificial light and learning how to use it to my advantage. Is, is that the sort of process that you went through? 
same thing for me, Rob. And it was photographing songbirds in woodland, right? Um, normally what I'll do, I like to use fill flash as opposed to flashes and main light again to, for really two things, one color pop on these birds and I'll take a Blackburnian warbler over a reed warbler any day. So I'm not <laughs> to your point, uh, but uh, what are you trying to say? We've got a lot of little black brown jobs in the UK. A lot of brown jobs in the UK. <laughs> a lot but, of brown jobs. Um, yeah, I would definitely do it for pop of color and then also catch light in the eye on a flat cloudy day when you're in a woodland or a forested area, you're not getting any catch light. So, and it's interesting how you apply it too. And it's how you balance the exposure between ambient and artificial light, even when you're using fill flash. So sometimes what I'll do is if I'm photographing songbirds, I'll go down a stop. I'll expose the ambient light. Um, probably. Yeah. I'll go down about a stop. I'll underexpose a stop. And that means the fill light has to compensate a bit more. So through the high speed sync, it'll push, uh, a bit more light to it. And it adds just a little bit more, I think, to the bird. And uh, there's more darks, there's more blacks, there's more shadows in it as a result. You're introducing that on... contrast again that we were talking yes. about. Yes. Yeah. So I kind of like to play around with, you know, maybe negative one stop or maybe two thirds, you know, and I'll play around and see what looks the best. A lot of it has to do with, too, if you're photographing in a woodland or, you know, in a forested area. What do you have behind the branches? You know, if you're if you're photographing a bird on a branch, what's behind there? Is are you going to be able to get shadow behind it, or is there you know more evenly lit kind of more sky? You know, it just depends on how you're shooting and where you're shooting. But I like to I like to underexpose just a little bit and make that fill flash compensate a little more. If you go if you go overboard with it too much, it gets more artificial looking and it gets just it has that flash look that nobody yeah. likes. I mean, what I would say to people is that if you, like I did, feel a bit intimidated about flash, is to start experimenting with it and start to try and understand it better. And perhaps the best way to do that is not to pick a subject that's going to move around and fly <laughs> away. Start with a start with a plant, for example. Um, and then photograph it without any flash and use ambient light and then add in a little bit of perhaps direct flash from the camera. Uh, so you're, you know, you said you're adding in that bit of fill, then start moving. Well, play around with this, with the power of the flash itself and see how the more powerful you make the flash, the more it takes away from that ambient light and the kind of the flatter it will feel. I mean, think about, those old images you used to take of uh, family parties, for example, where you had to, you know, the flash directly on the camera. And then if you use the flash to photograph people, it, it was, the effect was pretty horrible. You know, it was pretty flat, but start playing around with the power of the flash itself, play around, as you were saying, with a little bit of exposure compensation on the ambient light and see how that makes a difference. Then start moving the flash away from the camera a little bit and seeing how that, then makes a difference and I, th I think those as i said the jigsaw puzzle will start to come together because I th the, the most effective use of flash in in my you know in my way of thinking is that it adds something to the ambient light rather than the flash is illuminating the subject itself unless we're talking about photographing at night which is a completely different subject mm -hmm. um, that's that's the way i tend to look at flash it has to it has to add into the ambient light. That's the way I like to use it. Um, yep. And I might eventually start putting it behind the subject to create, you know, as we were talking about, you know, well, you know my love of backlight, you know, you mm -hmm. came through and we we're talking about natural light. But if you light something from behind with a flash, and I do this 
um, in portraits as well. I, you know, when I'm photographing people, for example, I'll often put a light behind the person and actually it, it then separates the sort of hairline sometimes from the background. So if you're photographing a plant, you would then start picking up all the little hairs on the petals and the leaves and things like that. And it separates it from the background. So have a play around with that because it can really be quite effective. Yeah. You know, when you, when you start doing those things. You bring up a great point too. I was just thinking about this, Rob, is the direction of artificial light. So that's huge. You have on-camera flash or you have off-camera flash. For fill light, high-speed sync situations, or if I'm photographing a bird or a mammal or what have you, and the flash is on top of my camera, or I have a flash bracket, but generally speaking, it's on the same axis of, of the lens. Uh, fill flash works great there. If you're using flash as a main light, meaning you're, you're lighting your entire uh, composition up with artificial light, you do not want, it's a big no-no, unless you're shooting like a 1982 Polaroid on somebody and you're blinding them. It's a big no-no to have. For those of our listeners that remember that. <laughs> I do remember holidays and getting whacked with yeah. that and going, oh my God. But uh, you, 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 if you're using flash as a main light, you do not want your flash on the same axis as your camera and your lens. You want it uh, at an angle. You want it overhead. You want it maybe from behind. And that's where you could start uh, controlling the situations. For, for birds or mammals or fast-moving subjects, if I need a little bit of fill and I'm exposing for the ambient light, it's on a flash bracket above me. Um, but if I'm shooting with a macro, if I'm shooting flowers, fungi, you know, herps, any of that stuff, I'm using it off access and I've got a soft box. And normally I use a Godox, actually. I love Godox. is pretty reasonable. Um, and, you know, I, I'll use an off-camera flash and with a soft box and Sometimes I'll even use multiple flashes if it's camera trapping and stuff like that. But um, flash is a main light. You don't want to have it on the same axis of, of the camera and the lens or it's not going to look good. Yeah. And, and how you treat that flash as well. We were talking about soft boxes and, and, and basically you're just diffusing and breaking up that light as it comes out of the flash. So it's, yeah. it's almost coming through like sunlight through cloud. So yes, you know, it's a lot, lot wraps around lot, the subject. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot softer. So it breaks up those light particles and they they spread more evenly over the subject rather than being more direct. So think think about the difference between direct sunlight and how harsh that can be and then light through high cloud and how diffuse and more even that can be. And that's basically what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. And another dichotomy between fill flash and flash as a main light. Flash as a main light, I'll put a soft box on to make it more diffused and envelop the subject. Uh, but if flash is a main light, or I'm sorry, flash is fill on top of your camera, normally I go just the opposite. I put what's called a better beamer, or there's other types of things where you're trying to get the light to hit the subject because it's further away, um, just to act as the fill for the catch light or a pop of color. So that's completely different. You're actually trying to uh, emphasize the beam more so it hits your subject versus... Because uh, you, you've got, I mean, for people that don't know, if you're using a 600 mil lens, for example, yeah. and then you're trying to use a standard speed light on your camera, the power of that is, is going to struggle. And the more powerful your flash, actually... The I, I had this issue when I was photographing birds in the garden. I'm going, I'm going to go off at a tangent here a little bit, but I'm going to try and explain this to people because it's quite a difficult concept to grab. But um, I was photographing birds in the garden and my, my idea was that I wanted to photograph them in the rain, but I wanted to use a backlight. Uh, I wanted the background black 
and I wanted to illuminate the birds so they were kind of rim lit. And, and, then, and then you get that nice light through the wings as they spread the wings as they're flying to and from feeders, that sort of thing. But I wanted to do it while it was raining. So the flash would then illuminate the raindrops from behind. So it'd almost be like a bird flying through a starry sky. So that's what I wanted. But that meant that I had to get the flash to freeze the motion. And normally that's not a problem uh, when you're using those lower powered flash settings because the flash actually you know the, the duration of the flash is much 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 quicker much faster than any shutter speed that you, you know, any camera can offer but the more powerful you need to make that flash the longer the duration is so actually the more chance you've then got of introducing motion blur for things that are moving really really quickly and this is the problem that i had photographing birds during the daylight because i had to underexpose so much i had to have the power of the flash almost at its maximum and then I was getting blur because the duration of the flash was too long. So it was really, really difficult for me to, to balance those, those things. So this is the problem that you have with a, with a, a longer lens. The power of the flash needs to be so great that actually the better thing to do is to introduce um, a magnification effect on that flash by putting something in front of it. So it's almost like putting a telephoto lens in front of your flash, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's a bit more rudimentary than that because they're not that expensive to, to do but you're it's almost like a hood over the flash with a with a with a sort of plastic lens at the front which magnifies the effect of that flash so you actually can use less power in the in the speed light itself and actually the recycling time is quicker as well if you're taking multiple yeah. images yeah. but if you have one of these faster cameras you definitely want to slow your shutter down because if you're shooting 20 frames a second good luck <laughs> i normally <laughs> i'll uh, you'll get one at one one of every maybe 10 uh shots as the flash i go to i go down to about five frames a second yeah good frames. good luck and wait for your batteries to catch fire because <laughs> yeah. they will <laughs> and, and they sell these uh, you know these supplementary battery packs that look like bazookas and you can plug in and those don't even you know, the one at least the brand that i have doesn't it helps catch up a little bit but not it's not worth it no. so i'll just slow my shutter down to five frames a second or whatever your slower shutter speed is and it helps but we, we could have we could have a discussion on flash for hours uh, yeah. one it's thing i love about flashes and mainline i prefer flashes and mainlight versus just this you know fill flash uh for in, in situations for macro um, when it comes to frogs, snakes, and so forth, the colors that come out in using flash and corrects, I mean, they're it just, the colors are so rich. The thing that I, I feel can either be an aesthetic turn on or an aesthetic turn off for the audience. If, if it's just me and I'm out in the field and I'm photographing, for instance, frogs, and normally what I'll have is I'll have a Godox flash off camera with a softbox on it. And I have to set it up and it's difficult. You need a subject that's not going to move around, right? You need a subject that's comfortable with you. So you set up the flash, you know, and I have a little um, Joby uh, Gorilla Pod. I'll set it up on it. I'll get the flash set up and then I'll have the macro uh, lens and my camera in hand and I'll shoot it. You know, I have a little remote trigger to shoot the flash. Long story short, because you're doing that, you're going to get, um, unless you have multiple flash setups and you're illuminating everything, uh, you're going to get a black background or you're going to have significant parts of the frame that are black. You see this in the top 100. There's some amazing images in there of the snail going around the moss. And, mm. uh, uh, but, you know, you're, you have to be okay and like that aesthetic, that low key look. If you're using flashes in main light with just one flash, you're going to get 
black backgrounds. You're going to get a lot of dark pieces of the frame. Some people because the very thing is you're underexposing that image because right. you want the artificial light to light it for you. Yeah, and that's that's exactly. the reason you get it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so a lot of people love that that low key look, and some people don't. It just depends on your viewer and your audience. But I think if you're shooting like that with flashes and moonlight, you need to be comfortable. You need to like that type of aesthetic because that's what yeah. you're going to get a lot of. And, and then you can go to the other extreme, can't you? Like the hummingbirds, you know, those sort of studio setups for the hummingbirds, the garden yeah. studio, and they got about five yeah. or six different flashes. So it's not only the flash lighting the bird, it's then the flash lighting the background at the same time, which then avoids that thing, that, that very thing that you were talking about. Because yeah. I had an interesting comment from, from a family member actually, when they looked at some of the images in the, in the bird photographer book and they said, how can, how can that shutter speed be used and the wings of that hummingbird be sharp? And I said, well, it's not the shutter speed, which is actually capturing the image. It's the flash. Yeah. It's the duration of the flash, which is, you know, capturing that image rather than the shutter speed. So it could be half a second if, if, if yeah. that, exposure of half a second was still enough to, to to not take over from the you know not allow the ambient light then to expose an image if it was still underexposed with the ambient light then the flash is you know that sort of brief flash mm -hmm. moment is still going to be the only thing that's recorded and I, so I, that's I that's what it is and i think rob there's a mathematical way to calculate it, it it's like one thirty thousandth of a second or even great you know or faster than that i've read that that you can actually calculate how quick it is in terms of uh what well, the flash duration? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of and, yeah the more the shutter speed, yeah, but the more powerful, the more powerful the flash is, the greater the duration of the flash. So the less, you know, so it's almost like think of it like shutter speed. So the you know the the um, the lower the power is on the flash, the faster the shutter speed. In in effect, mm -hmm. yeah, the more power you've got, the longer that flash has to last. So the more the shutter speed, and that basically is what you're talking about. And yeah. that's a lesson I had to learn, you know, through doing stuff that I was doing. And I was thinking, these are blur. Why are these, you know, come on, then think about it. You know, it's just like, I felt a bit stupid when I, when I actually realized what was going on. You think, of course, you know, but it's like anything I've, as I said, right at the start, flash used to intimidate me. It doesn't anymore. I, I look at it and I, I, I think it's a, a useful part of my arsenal. Yep. It's another tool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't particularly like using it. I'd much rather use natural light, but sometimes it's, you know, it's very, very useful. And the other point I would make about flash is that when you look at a lot of these, photography is expensive, right? You know, we all know this. And, and one of the, uh, one of the suggestions that, that we had from a, a listener was, you know, can you do something on, you know, wildlife photography on a budget, which we should do actually, because it is, you know, when you're looking at, yeah, thousands and thousands of pounds for all the camera equipment, you know, and then you start looking at things like speed lights and you look at the manufacturer's own brand speed lights. They are generally very, very expensive. What I would say is to people that when you're looking at those items of kit, like the flashes and things, there are alternatives which are much, much cheaper and work with all the major brands. Yeah. So look at look at go down that route, because that's what I do, because I, I tell you for why I did this is I remember spending 300 odd pounds or, or whatever on when I used to shoot Canon on a Canon speed light, which I then dropped in a rock pool and, you know, in the, <laughs> of the coast. And the thing is, if you do that, that's 300 pounds down the tube because that ain't ever going to work again. 
so I thought, well, I'm not, I'm not going to do that every time I want to go out because these things are going to happen. You know, I'm going to drop things in water. I'm going to sit on things and, you know, I'm going to break stuff. So I, I'd much rather spend a lot less on things. And then if I break it, it doesn't really matter. And you can spend a fraction of the, the cost of the branded items on something which, okay, might not be as good, but it's nine out of 10, yeah. generally speaking. And I, I've got a whole flash system which works off a little controller for probably the, the less than the cost of one branded speed light. So if you shop around and you look at it, there, there are really good value alternatives out there in the market. So just shop, shop around and, and that will give you, you know, a system that you will, will elevate your photography for, you know, for a lot less than you think. Yeah. Especially flash cords. They're ridiculously expensive. If you buy the camera brands versus, you know, the off camera stuff, you could save a oh, lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you think wireless remotes, right? You think the camera brand stuff is just hideously expensive. Yeah. But honestly, it's, you can buy things for, I think, if I remember rightly, I've got three flashes and a remote trigger. And I think that was, that's less than one Nikon Speedlight. Wow. All together. Now it's not going to be as good as the Nikon Speedlight in terms of, but you don't, you don't, in 99 times out of 100, you don't need everything that the, the branded Speedlight is going to give you. You, yep. re you really don't. And I'd much rather spend less money. And then if I have to replace a flash, which is 70 pounds as opposed to 350 pounds, it hurts a lot less. So, yeah, I like Godox. I mean, I've used them. They're a third party and they're relatively inexpensive compared to, you know, Canon. I'm a Canon shooter compared to some of the Canon stuff. Um, you know, one thing I was just thinking about too, Rob, we were talking about fill flash and we were also talking about flashes of Ainlight. Another good way to blend, I think, ambient and flash is using rear curtain sync. Uh, where you know you have a shutter speed and using ambient light where you get kind of a, a slow motion or you get that blur and then you have the of course the uh, the flash goes off at the end of the at the end of the frame and you get these awesome images of trailing and blurs and we've seen those and well certainly in bird photography the year over the years and some of the stuff in wild art too you can come up with some pretty cool imagery there yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a really that's a really good point actually. With certainly with things in motion, yeah. um, if you play around with when the flash actually fires, and you can do that in the camera menu, so you can either have it so it fires at the start of the frame, or you can have it firing at the end of the exposure, which is that rear curtain sync that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. If you start playing around with those, because the other thing is that if you mix in this ambient light and then the flash so for example uh if you've seen those diving kingfisher images which have these trailing you know it almost looks like the, the the kingfisher is blurred so you've got this sort of trail and then you've got this sharp kingfisher right at the end that is done by a mixture of ambient light or there's an artificial constant light added so the exposure is the shutter speed is slower to allow that motion to be captured, but the amb you know the exposure is set up so the ambient light actually captures that element of it, and then the flash is fired right at the end, which is the frozen bit, which is where you get the the, the frozen image at the end. That's how those images are done. So it's it's using flash in a creative way like that, and when you start sort of putting these things together, you know the world is you know it is limitless as to yeah. what you could do. 
Yeah. And I have to say, um, strong opinion, warning, strong opinion here, but you were talking about hummingbird photo, uh, photography with the multiple flash setups and the, I can't even look at those images. Any. They're so boring to me. I mean, a lot of people still take them, but rear curtain sync would add at least a little bit of interest and maybe some other things. We've seen some cool rim light backlit shots of hummingbirds, which I think are beautiful, but the, that standard, you know, multiple flash setup with the, you know, the, the painted screen behind them and they put the sugar water in the flat. Oh, it's so, it's kind of so cliche. I can't even look at them anymore. They're so boring. <laughs> Sorry. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> How many of those do you think I've seen in my life? Uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it's interesting too, because in the Northeast we get one, basically one species of hummingbird. It's the ruby throated. And I've had a lot of good in my pollinator garden where they come in. I don't even want to photograph them because I think of those images. So, uh, but there, uh, there's not, and there's nothing, uh, you know, what I will say is nothing wrong in doing that. I mean, no, no. if you've never done it before, I've never done it before. It would be fun. My you know, for me, it would be fun. Opinion. Yeah. And, but I, I, you know, what you're basically, what you're trying to say is that you like to see things. You'd like to see different things you haven't seen before. Yeah, that's what and and for me as a photographer, that's what gets me going. I have to say. So if you've seen, yes, they're nice, but that's that's about as far as it goes because you've seen it so many times. It's rather like, I don't know, you see a, a you know a, a Nissan Qashqai on the road. It's probably the most common car on the road. So you, you know, might it's a nice car, nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't turn your head, does it? Because you see it yeah. every day. But if you see a McLaren driving down the road you're going to you're going to look aren't you because yep. you don't see them every day and and, and this goes, is this is kind of a similar thing you're right and that goes back to an earlier point we were making where if you're shooting in you know direct sunlight more standard conditions what most people see photograph photography taken in for wildlife it's up to the you got to up your game it has to be something interesting if i have direct sunlight and it's in a kind of a situation where most photographers are shooting or what you see most of the time it's got to be a really cool interaction or cool predator prey chase or telling some sort of story. Same with just, you know, kind of your general boring cloudy conditions. It's up to, it's up to the photographer to raise the game in the image to make that image stand out. If, um, you know, if, if it's, I guess you could use the car analogy, right? If, if, um, uh, McLaren or a Lamborghini comes down the road in regular lighting conditions, that picture is probably going to turn a few more heads than a Honda civic, but you need, you know, if, if it's a Honda civic, um, Oh boy, what's a good analogy? I don't know. Crashing into with run over. And yeah, that sort of stuff going yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah, you got to up your game, I think. So yeah, or doing a donut in the <laughs> you know in, the, in Times Square or something. Yeah. Yeah, Fast, Fast and the Furious Part Twenty. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Again, off piste, still. <laughs> I think it sort of highlights what we're trying to say. You know, is is that. If you okay, so if you're photographing a European robin, for example, and it's a standard shot, front lit shot of a European robin, it might be technically brilliant, it might be perfectly nice, but it's not going to turn your head. Whereas if you underexposed it, flashed it from behind, and you've got this little silhouette of a robin, you know, singing away, whatever, you might go, Oh, that's a bit different. Yeah. You know, that's quite Absolutely. nice. And that's what you're trying to say is you're introducing those, you're introducing the extraordinary elements to the ordinary. Would that, would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Whereas if you come across something that's extraordinary or if something that's rare or unique or crazy, ordinary conditions would be okay. 
I, like th- I think that's that's a that's pretty much nailed it, hasn't it? What we're yeah. pretty much nailed what we're trying to get across here, uh, in the, you know, in the use of lighting, use lighting to create the extraordinary. Absolutely, I think that's, that that's pretty good. Let's just while we're on the point of artificial flash, and I'm I'm conscious of we're, we're you know yet again you've been yabbering on for quite a while, <laughs> but I make no apologies easy, for that. Yeah, yeah. You know. Let's talk about LED lights because I actually quite like the use of LED lights. And if you are a little bit intimidated by flash, this is a really good place to start because, A, they are really inexpensive these days. I mean, you can go on Amazon and buy little LED lights for, like, no money. And they can be surprisingly powerful. So, And they're sort of thing that aren't heavy. You can carry them around in your pockets, in your camera bag. I found them, and actually most of them as well, you can change the color temperature on as well. So not only have they got a, a brightness dial where you can dial them up and down a little bit, they've actually got a color temperature dial, which, which adds an extra little element of spice to things, uh, which can be quite quite good fun. But particularly if you're photographing things that don't run away, like plants and fungi. I mean, fungi is a really good example of this. There are lots and lots and lots of photographers that use LED lights to light fungi. So you know those sort of... Uh, fungi images that appear to be lit from underneath, so almost like sort of, you know, lit parasols, that sort of that sort of thing. Nine times out of ten, that'll be done by LED lights these days because they're surprisingly powerful, as people know. I've seen people use pen lights, even Rob. Yeah, you know, they'll put pen lights underneath the fungi. Oh, and there's, and there, I mean, do, let, let's not get onto painting with light because that's a whole different subject <laughs> as well. <laughs> Don't know how you do that with wildlife photography, but you know. Not, not for things that move around, but anyway, that's that's another subject. But yeah, you're you're right, and they 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 will just just have a. So if you've had a longer exposure, for example, let's say you had a five second exposure, which isn't unusual if you're photographing fungi in the middle of a forest, and you're using a you know you want to use fifty or hundred ISO, which is which is great, and you're using a five second exposure to expose for the ambient light, you could then take that pen light or that LED light, and you could paint. Basically, you could you could focus on the on the fungus itself, and then you could paint in basically point the beam on like sort of coloring in a, a coloring in book, if you like. And actually, then that extra bit of light, you know, will will have an effect on your on your final image because you're pointing a brighter bit of light during that exposure at the point that you want to emphasize. So. If you start playing around with those sorts of things, or you have a, a constant light source and you put a little LED light on the forest floor, for example, pointing up underneath the under, underneath the mushroom, and you're photographing it from that angle where you're seeing the gills underneath and then the sky behind it, that sort of thing, they can be really, really effective, though, those images. So it's really worth playing around with. I think that's an excellent place to start if you are intimidated by this artificial light, because you can you can see instantly the effect that that's having on your images in front of your eyes. Whereas flash is, uh, you know, is a little bit more experimental. You have to go back and have a look at the images you've taken and then adjust the settings and keep playing around with it. Whereas with the ambient light, you can see instantly what you're getting. Yeah. Definitely more trial and error with a flash than the led. Like you said, it's right there. You know, and, and then we can get into things like reflectors and all that sort of thing. I mean, simple things like carrying around a, a white piece of card, or a bit of tin foil, or those sort of things, just to reflect a bit of light back. And, and, and actually, a uh, fungus is a great example of that. A bit of white card 
on the forest floor, reflecting back the light that's coming in through the canopy up underneath can make a surprising difference. Start playing around with all those sorts of things. You know, this doesn't have to be a very expensive business. I mean, you can do it very, very cheaply, you know, it, depending on what you photograph. I've seen fungi shots too, and I've tried this. It, it's more of a time commitment, but, you know, you'll take, you know, if you have, especially if it's a wider scene where you have, you know, a group of, um, you know, you have a grouping there of fungi and you have a forested scene behind it, you'll take an, ex, you know, one exposure can be the general scene, one exposure, you know, for the background, one can be for the fungi, the other, you put the pen light under each, and then you merge, you merge all these images together. You create, you know, you create a composite. And boy, you look really pleasing, really, yeah. really pleasing. But it's it's just an artistic um, angle for stuff like that. I've seen some of these forested shots with toadstools lit up. I mean, it's stunning if it's done correctly. It's done. Yeah. It takes a lot of time and patience to do it. Uh, do you know, I think that's a really good place to end, actually. We sort of have this sort of uh, almost this sort of artistic experimental element just thrown in right at the end just to i think the thing is 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 to have a go and just play around with artificial light and don't be afraid of it because the results can be you know amazing i think when when you look at light as a whole in photography when we look at natural light i think the understanding is a bit more instant when you look at artificial light there's a bit more of a learning curve with it but don't be intimidated by it and the more you experiment with it boy some of the results can be completely completely amazing i mean i'm a photographer i like to work with natural light whenever i can but i'm not afraid now of introducing those artificial light elements because i know how powerful they can be and you can turn a dull day into you know uh, you know a backlighting spectacular with with artificial light you know it's all in your you know you can control that environment completely you can almost take a studio outside with you at times yeah, you know, have have the right conditions. So don't be a, be afraid. Anyway, absolutely. Josh, thank you so much again. That's yeah, been, this great. Uh, this is fun. a really good discussion. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Josh and I really, really enjoy doing this. Uh, and I said we've we've been getting some really lovely comments from people. So thank you for those. They they really are appreciated. Um, you know, we we do this because we enjoy it. Uh, and if we didn't enjoy it, we we wouldn't do it because it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it would come off. So I hope the I hope the enthusiasm and the enjoyment does come across in you know in, in our discussions. And as I said, if there are any subjects that people want us to cover, then do reach out to us on on our social media channels. You know the links are in the you know in the show notes, uh, and just let us know what you you know what you'd like to hear about because we you know we'd be more than happy to to sort of pick up the baton and uh, and, and and talk about those subjects. Yeah, and please give us a rating too. Uh, yeah. Online on either Apple or Spotify. Yeah, give us a rating and uh, give us a review because those things really, really help. Uh, you know, the more uh, the more reviews we get, uh, the more comments we get, you know, the more ratings we get, then the wider the audience we're going to hit. And if you've been enjoying this, then other people may well enjoy it as well. The other thing I'd like to mention actually is the uh, conservation cause that we're supporting through Wild Art this year. Uh, which is a, a, a project to purchase a wetland in Australia, which has been brought to our attention by Georgina Stakler, you'll know who's one of the judges in, in Wild Art, is a totally amazing wildlife photographer based in Australia. And if you don't know Georgina, then go and look her up on Instagram. Her stuff is, is, is awesome. But she is 
uh, not only is she an amazing photographer, but she is, uh, you know, a, a passionate conservationist. And her project this year is to raise the money to buy an area of wetland in Australia close to her home, which, amongst other things, uh, is a breeding site for the endangered Australasian bittern. Uh, so we're helping her with that through Wild Art. So if you've enjoyed the podcast episode, then, you know, why not donate just a, a dollar or a pound or whatever to that conservation cause? And I'll leave a link in the, you know, in the show notes below where you can go directly to the website that's raising money for that cause, see what it's all about uh, and go and make a donation. That would be really, really appreciated. And said, so, you know, so we, we're not asking for, for anything for doing this. We do it because we love it. But we're also passionate conservationists. And, you know, this year we're trying to help Georgina out, you know, with, with that cause. So, you know, a pound or a dollar, you know, if you've got something out of this, it would be most appreciated. Uh, so I'll leave that, that link in, in, in the show notes. Josh, thanks again. Uh, it's been it's been really good fun talking about this subject. Uh, I'm I'm not sure. Well, I, I we've got a few things, a few ideas next. I'm not sure which one we're going to action next, but we've certainly got plenty of of ideas in the pipeline and things that we're working on. So, probably another guest, I would say, is is going to be the next podcast. Uh, you know, and it might be quite quite soon. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll let you know when we when we put that together. But uh, as I said, Josh, thanks very much for for, for coming on again. And um, yes, it's been great. It's been a really good discussion. So, uh, anyway, thanks everybody for listening, and uh, we'll see you again in the next one. You have been listening to the Wildlife Photography Podcast. If you have enjoyed the content then please help us to spread the word by sharing a link on your social media platforms, giving us a like and leaving us a comment. See you all again next time.